Welcome to the Cosmic Savannah with Dr. Jacinta Del Hayes and Dr. Daniel Kunema. Each episode, we'll be giving you a behind-the-scenes look at the world's vast astronomy and astrophysics happening under African skies. Let us introduce you to the people involved, the technology we use, the exciting work we do, and the fascinating discoveries we make. Sit back and relax as we take you on a safari through the skies. Welcome to episode 21. Today we'll be speaking to... Today we'll be speaking to Dr. Tana Joseph from the Jodrell Bank Observatory. Which is in Manchester in the UK. That's right, close to Manchester in the UK. And she's going to tell us all about uh, X-ray binaries. And we should probably point out that Tana is from South Africa originally. Yes, she's from Cape Town itself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so she studied here and then she went off on various adventures around the world and now she's a superstar astronomer and also a small business owner. Mm-hmm. And what exactly is an X-ray binary? That's a very good question. So this episode is all going to be about stars and stellar evolution, which we haven't talked that much about because you and I are both galaxy people and a lot of our colleagues and conferences we go to, uh, we talk a lot to people who research galaxies, both our own and extragalactic. But every now and again, we try and talk to someone in the stellar community and uh, Tana is one of those. So X-ray binaries are, so the sun is relatively rare, uh, relatively unusual in that it's just hanging out by itself and we in the solar system revolve around it. But a lot of stars are actually born close together and orbit each other for the rest of their lives. And this is called a binary. And then if one of these stars is very massive, it can explode in a supernova explosion at the end of its life. And what's left at the end of that can be what we call an exotic object. It could be a neutron star, which is made of just neutrons. It's very compact, very dense, and sometimes it's uh, releasing pulses of radio waves. Or it could be uh, a black hole. And then when it interacts with the companion star, so the star that's still alive, it's still a normal star, some of the outer layers of the atmosphere of this star accrete or are sucked in to, towards this uh, neutron star or black hole. And as it's doing this, there it's releasing a huge amount of energy, often at very high energy wavelengths, so like X-rays. So these compact objects are basically devouring their sibling star. Yeah, they don't eat it completely, but they, they're kind of sucking stuff off this other star. Just nibble. Just, nibble. just, just a little nibble. <laughs> But so this this event though this this little nibbling on your companion star, it's very energetic, right? So that's where these X rays are coming from. X ray radiation is a is very energetic radiation and requires quite a, a hot energetic environment. Yeah, so you you basically have to have something that's very dramatic in, in the universe, something that's very hot, very high powered. So this is not a quiet environment. Certainly life can't exist near this interaction because it's releasing a lot of crazy radiation would be wiped out immediately. Yeah, so that's why it's it's quite exciting to figure out what's going on and how this interaction impacts the evolution of both the star and the compact object and what that leads to in the future and then eventually leading all the way to gravitational wave studies. Mm-hmm. Uh, we should probably hear from Tana and she can explain this further. Yeah, she explains it fantastically. So let's, let's hear from Tana. Here with us at the Soreo Bursary Conference 2019 is Dr. Tana Joseph from the University of Manchester. Welcome, Tana. Thank you for having me. 
Tell us about yourself. My name is Tana Joseph. I am an X-ray astronomer and I'm originally from Cape Town, currently working at the University of Manchester in the Jodrell Bank Centre for Astrophysics. I am a Royal Society Newton International Fellow and yeah, I'm really enjoying my, my time in Manchester, but as the nights get longer in the Northern Hemisphere winter, I, I'm glad to be here in Durban in the, um, the nice warm sunshine. I bet you are. Tana, you're originally from Cape Town. Tell us about your path through astronomy. In the mid-90s, I decided that I wanted to be an astronomer. And at that point, there was no SKA, there was no Meerkat, there was no Southern African Large Telescope, the optical telescope in Sutherland that's really famous in South Africa. So that infrastructure wasn't there and those resources weren't there in the mid-90s. But with my parents' support, I decided that this was going to be my career and I did the necessary subjects at school like maths and physics and I did my undergraduate degree, my BSc in physics at the University of Cape Town. Um, I did my honours in physics there as well and then I switched to astronomy um, at the master's level and by that point um, we had started receiving SKA funding. They hadn't yet chosen us as a joint host country of the SKA, but we were busy making plans and building things. So um, things like the CAT-7 telescope that's also out in the Karoo. And so with the help of that funding and those resources, I did my master's in actually galaxy surveys, H1 galaxy surveys. Really? Yes. So I have a bit of a soft spot for H1 because that was my first introduction to to astronomy was single dish H1 galaxy surveys. Me too. Yeah, started out extra galactic and um, learned a lot. It was a really nice learning curve. And that was in 2007 that I started. And I also attended my first bursary conference. In those days, it wasn't called the Sadeo Bursary Conference. It was just called the SKA Bursary Conference because Sadeo was only established a couple of years ago or so. Um, so this was, yeah, more than 10 years ago. And it's always lovely for me to come to this particular conference and see the sheer number of students, the number of people that I don't know is really exciting to me because things have really, really grown so much and the community is increasing and it's increasingly diverse, it's increasingly young and that's exactly what you need for a big sort of legacy project that the SKA is set up to be, that, you know, you need to have a lot of young people to drive it forward. And I've even said this about myself now as a sort of technically an early career researcher still, but um, I'm now in my third or fourth, depending on how you count it, postdoctoral fellowship, and I've said to school kids when I do outreach talks that the SKA is not actually for me. Meerkat and ASCAP, the Australian counterpart of Meerkat, the SK precursors are for me in terms of my career. And last night um, at the opening address, the director of Sereo, Rob Adam, kind of echoed that. He said when he sees the more senior people here, um, you know, the SK is not for them in terms of their career. And even for me, I'm not as senior as a professor, but I see Meerkat as an ASCAP as the workhorses. That's where I'm going to do my interesting science. And by the time SKA phase one is done, I will be past my Nobel Prize winning time because the thing about a Nobel Prize apparently is that you win it for work that you did before you were 40. 
and I'm 35, so I've got five more years, and unfortunately that counts me out as ISCA phase one Nobel Prize winning science, so I have to do it with me a cat and ASCAP. I've never heard that rule. Yeah, um, it's apparently, yeah, it's in the sciences anyway. I mean, I'm not, I can't really begrudge anyone anything because uh, Meerkat and ASCAP are such groundbreaking, cutting-edge instruments. There's going to be so much exciting science, already, in fact, exciting science coming out of it. So now's the time to do that, um, to do that groundbreaking research. What single dish telescope did you use for your H1 studies during your PhD? I travelled to the middle of France to a tiny village called Nancy. And I use the Nancy radio telescope, which is quite an old telescope and it has a really interesting sort of funny design. And the, back in the days when they actually built this telescope, they couldn't make a single dish that big. So they split it up into what would be sort of the equivalent of, um, quite a big telescope, much bigger than any of the Meerkat tele, uh, telescope dishes, individual dishes. Um, not quite Green Bank Telescope Big, which is, I think, just over 100 meters, so not quite as big as the Effelsberg Telescope or the Green Bank Telescope, but sort of on that kind of scale. But they couldn't figure out how to, they didn't have the engineering capacity to make a single dish. So it's what's called a, um, it's not quite a transit telescope, but it's made up of a curved, but that's a section of a sphere. And then a few tens of meters away on the other side of the field is the flat steerable mirror part. And then the focus is in the middle of that. And it's on a curved railway track. So the, so if you want to really focus into there, you need to actually move the focus. Um, yeah, it's a really interesting design. And I got to go out there as part of my masters. Luckily, I spoke a bit of French, um, uh, because I was in a part of France in a small village where no one speaks English. And so everything had to be in French, and I ate the most delicious, authentic French food. It was fantastic. And every night, my supervisor and I, who was a much older man, who had a daughter about my age, we would sit and have our dinner, and they'd give us a bottle of wine. So we'd be drinking this, what I would call fancy French wine, but to them, I suppose, it was just plonk. Um, so it was, yeah, it was a very sophisticated experience getting my data. Wow, that sounds like a lot more of a sophisticated and romantic kind of experience than I had when I was doing my PhD with single dish telescopes. I used the Parkes telescope in in Australia, in rural Australia, and I spent it fighting off locust plagues. (laughs) Well, I don't know if they were locusts, but something like that. So we know locusts, but there was sort of there was a bit of a warning. We were told to watch out for wild boar. So it's proper like wooded area of France, a bit of a bit of the Asterix and Obelix kind of vibe about it. Yeah, very rustic. And we would they were just like, just kind of don't go into the woods after dark because they're known to be some wild boar around and they could they could seriously hurt you oh, if you dear. Yeah, a very interesting experience. Part of the thing when astronomers or other academics say, Oh, I love to travel, I see different parts of the world and you think of France, you're like, Oh, it's not that exotic, but that's because you're thinking of Paris. Because mm. everyone knows the Eiffel Tower, everyone knows the Louvre, but very few people get to go to these tiny villages like I did. And I was, yeah, I was very happy to have that experience and yeah, all that delicious food. Oh, yum. (laughs) I'm getting, my stomach is starting to rumble thinking about it. Okay. So you started off in, in H1 astronomy area and you mentioned that you now work in x-rays, which is a different part of the electromagnetic spectrum. And on this podcast, we've spoken a lot about radio astronomy because of obviously Meerkat here in South Africa. And we speak a lot about optical because of salt, but we rarely have spoken about x-rays. So just tell us why x-rays and what you can see with them. X-rays 
are on the very high energy end of the electromagnetic spectrum. And it's what we call penetrating radiation, which if you're familiar with x-rays from getting them in a medical sense at hospital to look at your broken bones, it makes sense that it's called penetrating radiation because the x-rays go right through your your body and they are absorbed differently by your skin, by your muscles and by your bone. And that's how you build up an image of what's inside you. X-rays coming from outside the Earth are actually absorbed by the Earth's atmosphere because if they actually were to reach us, they would be extremely damaging and harmful to our bodies because they'd go right through and would be sort of, if you think about ultraviolet rays causing skin cancer, X-rays are much more energetic than that, so it would be a real problem. So in order to observe X-rays and observe the universe in X-rays, we actually have to put the telescopes and detectors outside the atmosphere so they are satellites, the X-ray satellites. So I get to use space telescopes in my X-ray research. And another way to sort of think about X-rays is it comes from things that are incredibly hot. So about... 10 or 20 million degrees. And when something's very hot like that, it's also an indication of very energetic, powerful, very strong forces and interactions and processes. So you're looking at things where there's strong gravity, for instance, strong magnetic fields, all that kind of stuff. So what you see in X-rays is the energetic universe, things like black holes, neutron stars, pulsars, in particular I study X-ray binaries, which are stellar mass black holes, so black holes that you get from um, exploding massive stars after they go supernova, or a neutron star, and they have some other star orbiting them called a donor star or a companion star, and the donor star actually donates, sort of in quotation marks, donates its material to the neutron star or the black hole, and that process is called accretion. So obviously the star is not actually donating it, it's happening under the force of gravity, the strong gravitational field. And as that material gets dragged off the donor star and onto the neutron star surface or into the black hole, it heats up and there's a lot of friction in there and it heats up to about 10 to 20 million degrees and then it starts to glow in x-rays and that's what we, or that's what I study and I detect with my space satellites. And what's great about X-ray binaries is they're called X-ray binaries only because that's the wavelength that they're the brightest in, but they're actually multi-wavelength objects. So the processes, the physical processes that happen in X-ray binaries give off a lot of X-rays. They also give off a lot of radio waves and optical light, and in some cases gamma rays as well. So it's a nice multi-wavelength object. And I actually use a lot of multi-wavelength data in the study of these. And now that we have gravitational wave detectors, we're opening up sort of a new way to explore these binary systems. So systems that would normally be dark in the electromagnetic spectrum, like two neutron stars orbiting each other or two black holes or a neutron star in a black hole orbiting each other. So at some point, those sources used to be probably high-mass X-ray binaries, what we call high-mass X-ray binaries. So there's a lot of interest now in the cutting-edge gravitational wave community to go back, take a step back and say, but where do we actually get these double black holes or double neutron stars or neutron star black hole systems from? You get them from X-ray binaries. So we're trying to figure out those exotic sources by looking at the progenitor sources, which is high-mass X-ray binary. So 
just to explain, we have this funny thing in X-ray binary research where we classify X-ray binaries by not the mass of the neutron star or the black hole, but actually the mass of the donor star. So when I say a high-mass X-ray binary, I mean a neutron star or a black hole that's in a binary with a massive star, so a star that's sort of greater than 10 times the mass of our sun. A low-mass X-ray binary, which is actually my main focus, is where the donor star is about twice as massive as our sun and less. So our star is a low, our sun is a low-mass star. And then that range in between the 2 to 10 solar mass range, you would have intermediate mass binaries, but they are very short-lived and they're actually not that many. So we tend to sort of not consider them when we're studying populations because they're only a handful that are, that are known. That's how you classify X-ray binaries, not by the black hole and the neutron star, but by the companion star. Why is it important to study these X-ray binaries, and in particular low-mass X-ray binaries? And what are you working on at the moment? Thank you for bringing up that question. It's a fantastic question. So what's great about low-mass X-ray binaries is that you get them in these, sometimes in these configurations with a black hole where you have the donor star donating its material to the black hole and then you get these radio jets coming out and they are tiny analogs of active galactic nuclei where you have a supermassive black hole at the center of a galaxy and it's also got these jets coming out radio jets sometimes x-ray jets sometimes optical jets so these tiny low mass x-ray binary analogs are called microquasars and what's really useful about black hole physics or that we think is um, how black hole physics works is that it's scale invariant. So what that means is whether you're looking at a 10 solar mass black hole in a microquasar or a 10 million solar mass supermassive black hole in the center of an active galactic nucleus, the physics is the same. And so the issue comes in with time scales. The bigger your object that you're looking at, so if you're looking at a supermassive black hole, the longer your time scale. So these AGN are bright and you can see them at really, really far distances and that's really great. But the time scales on which the physical processes happen, happen on the scale of centuries and millennia. And so that's obviously much longer than a human, not just a human life, but a human civilization. Whereas the microquasars, the time scales involved are minutes, days, weeks, months. So very much more manageable time scales. So you can use the microquasar low mass X-ray binaries to learn about far away distant galaxies to kind of probe the physics, the complicated physics that happens in these AGN, which is very exciting. Another Example of, again, with gravitational waves, with multi-messenger astronomy, why low-mass X-ray binaries are particularly interesting is that we actually think that within these structures called globular clusters, which are very old, so when I say very old, I mean giga years old, nearly as old, some of them can nearly be as old as the universe itself, these very old, very dense, compact spherical clusters of stars that orbit galaxies, so they're called globular clusters, and inside them there are low-mass X-ray binaries, there are this particular kind of low-mass X-ray binary we call ultra-compact binaries with a black hole and, say, a white dwarf, and they're orbiting each other. And our calculations suggest and the theory suggests that these low-mass X-ray binaries will be sources of gravitational waves that we should be able to detect with future space-based gravitational wave detectors, uh, particularly one called LISA, so laser interferometry space I can't remember what the A stands for now. I've got most of the way through that acronym though. And so LISA will be, LISA won't be sensitive to the same kind of thing that LIGO is detecting. So these far away, quite heavy 
black, double black holes, or the neutron stars are quite far away, but much lighter systems, but much closer in. So we're talking about globular clusters that are orbiting our own Milky Way galaxy. And so now there's a lot of, again, a renewed interest in low-mass X-ray binaries because of the gravitational wave connection in trying to find these systems ahead of time so we have a priori knowledge of them in the electromagnetic spectrum and then adding on the gravitational wave information once LISA comes online. And what's really nifty about LISA is that it should be coming online roughly the same time as SKA phase one, which is the Meerkat expansion. So they should be contemporaries. Um, and I think that's really going to revolutionize the study of X-ray binary. So my talk here at um, the Sareo Conference 2019 is about not just expanding our X-ray binary work to the gravitational work, but actually how our electromagnetic studies in sort of more traditional studies of X-ray binaries can actually provide really important information going forward for things like LISA, for example. So one of the issues that you have with LIGO and LISA, these gravitational wave detectors, is this issue of localization. Narrowing down where on the sky these things actually came from. So you can try and see if there's a, a galaxy there, or you can try and point other telescopes at it. And so if you already have information about, say, an ultra-compact X-ray binary, low-mass X-ray binary in a globular cluster, because you saw, so you, you can have some candidates, you know exactly where it is because you have really good localization with something like Meerkat. Then once LISA is built and these things actually start giving off detectable gravitational waves in the LISA band, then we have a wealth of information leading up to that. We have a priority data, then you add that to the gravitational wave data. And so basically I'm trying to showcase the fact that gravitational waves are what's hot right now in astronomy, but electromagnetic telescopes or traditional telescopes aren't just useful as follow-ups, but can actually be um, providing precursor information so we can actually inform what they look at and what science they do, because we have, say, perhaps a list of candidates already, and I think that's really important. Yeah, I was going to ask when Lisa will be expected, but you've already answered and I was wondering whether it would be coincident with the SKA, which you said that it is. Uh, so it's just going to be an amazing revolution in astronomy, and I, I can't wait to hear what we're learning about. In the meantime, what are you working on now? At the moment, I am working on these large and small Magellanic clouds, so the nearest, our nearest galactic neighbors. And uh, for those of you in the Southern Hemisphere, of course, you know, you, you can see them with the naked eye if you're in a sufficiently dark place. And unfortunately, if you're in the Northern Hemisphere, you can't see them at all. So that's a good enough reason to come to the Southern Hemisphere. <laughs> and these Magellanic clouds are really useful test beds in terms of astrophysics because they are, we know exactly where they are in terms of distance, but they're also near enough that you can actually resolve the stellar components. Um, you can study tidal interactions because these galaxies are really small compared to our Milky Way. So they're being tidally disrupted by each other because they're quite close to each other, but also by the much larger Milky Way. So there's a lot of tidal interactions. They have very low metallicity. I'm not sure if the listeners out there know this. Another quirk of astronomy is that basically in astronomy, we, we have hydrogen and we have helium and 
all other um, chemical elements are called metals. So Chemists hate that. <laughs> yes, my sister is um, studying chemistry and she is, gets very frustrated when I, say just, when I say metals and I just throw it out there. So yeah, so these two galaxies, the dwarf galaxies and the Magellanic clouds have very low abundances of metals compared to our sun or compared to our galaxy, the Milky Way. And so in that regard, that actually makes them similar to the conditions in the early universe where there were fewer metals because there were fewer stars to enrich um, to enrich the universe. So if you want to study things that are dependent sensitively on how many metals there are or the metal abundance is like, for instance, the evolution of very massive stars, so stars greater than 100 solar masses, depends very much on um, the metallicity components. And you can study that really well in the Magellanic Clouds. And these very massive stars are exactly the kind of stars that we think form these massive black holes that LIGO has seen, these 50 solar mass black holes. How do you get a 50 solar mass black hole? Because usually stars that we see in our local environment go up to about maybe 40 solar masses. There's a few that are bigger, but we've actually discovered in the Large Magellanic Cloud a population of stars with masses from 150 up to 300 solar masses. And that's only possible when you have low metallicities. So that's just one example of why the Magellanic Clouds are a really good test bed to study the kind of things that give you LIGO sources. And they also have a lot of high-mass X-ray binaries, which I said earlier on um, would be the progenitors of these LIGO-type sources. They have everything that you need. They have the low metallicity. They're nearby. They have a lot of truly massive stars. They have a lot of high-mass X-ray binaries. So you put all of that together and you can study a lot of pre-gravitational wave sources. You can study the physics of the things that go into that. And that's what I'm doing right now. So I have used the ASCAP telescope along with a huge team of people, of course, all over the world to survey the small Magellanic cloud. And I also have some data on the small Magellanic cloud from Meerkat. And we're putting this all together, trying to find, find out as much as we can really about these galaxies and really delve into what's in there. How did they get there? How do they grow and change? And how did they change the environment? And there's, so much work to do, which is always great because if we knew everything, we wouldn't have scientists. So it's a really exciting time for me to finally get my hands on some SK precursor data. That's really, really exciting. So ASCAP, of course, being the radio telescope recently built in Western Australia, the counterpart to South Africa's Meerkat, um, and you've got data from both, which is incredibly exciting. Do you think this may one day help us understand how supermassive black holes form, supermassive as in millions to billions of times the, the mass of the sun? So that is a slightly awkward question, actually, because there is something called a mass gap, I guess you'd call it, in astronomy, where we know that supermassive black holes exist because we have observed them and we can estimate their masses. And we know that, that what we call stellar mass black holes exist and their masses go up to, if you include the LIGO masses, they go up to just about 80 solar masses, 80 times the mass of our sun, and some as light as maybe five or six or seven times the mass of our sun. And so that leaves a huge gap there. So basically between a hundred solar masses and about a million solar masses, there's nothing in terms of black holes. And that's the region that we call intermediate mass black holes. That's something that we think forms in the early universe. So LIGO might be able to help with that because what could be happening is you could have these LIGO sources, um, where 
you have a 50 solar mass black hole and a 50 solar mass black hole and they merge and you get, say, 100 solar masses. But that would happen in the very early universe and we know more about that once we know more about where those initial heavy mass black holes came from. But it still doesn't really fill the mass gap in. And the thing, the reason why this is awkward is because we think that intermediate mass black holes are sort of what we call the seed black holes from which supermassive black holes form via accretion. So you get this intermediate mass black hole, say it's about 100,000 solar masses, and then over time it accretes or draws um, mass onto it from the galaxy around it and it grows and that's how it ends up as a supermassive black hole. But we can't find these these intermediate mass black holes, and there are a few candidates. There's one or two really good candidates, but until we get a mass estimate, we won't see anything. There's no consensus yet whether the Large Magellanic Cloud has a central black hole or not. So there are black holes at the center of most massive galaxies, but these are dwarf galaxies, the Magellanic Clouds. So if there is a black hole at the center, given the size of the Magellanic Clouds, it's probably going to be an intermediate mass black hole. And this is something that we could detect possibly with LISA if we have stars close enough spiraling in what in what we call an extreme mass ratio in spiral. So the extreme mass ratio comes from the fact that the intermediate mass black hole in the LMC, if it is there, will probably be about, say, 100,000 solar masses. And then it would be dragging in stars that are normal stellar masses, so between 1 and 20 solar masses. So that's a huge ratio of masses, 10,000 versus 1, basically, or 10,000, or 100,000 versus 1, 100,000 versus 10. And the in-spiral of those stars into this intermediate mass black hole will give rise to gravitational waves that LISA should be able to detect. What's great about these in-spiral scenarios now is that the theorists are saying that before they spiral in like that, there will actually be electromagnetic radiation given off from the radio all the way to the X-ray. And in the Southern Hemisphere, we have the two of the most powerful radio telescopes now that can easily and very sensitively observe the Large Magellanic Cloud and look for signatures of these extreme um, mass ratio in spirals. And then this is where the localization comes in that I spoke about earlier because LISA... Lisa's localization, for the way it's being set up, is not going to be that good. So we would massively benefit from um, having, say, ASCAP and Meerkat working together, finding these radio waves coming from these stars spiraling into this potential intermediate mass black hole in the Large Magellanic Cloud, and using the very good accuracy, spatial accuracy, of these radio telescopes, and then nailing down where this black hole actually is. And then Lisa will be able to kind of point at it much more accurately. And so this is sort of the fantastic synergy of multi-messenger astronomy, where the electromagnetic components, the gravitational waves, and maybe even things like we might even see neutrinos as they spiral in, because multi-messenger isn't just gravitational waves and um, electromagnetic um, waves. It's also neutrinos, it's cosmic waves, cosmic rays, even meteorites. And comets and all of that, these are all messenger particles. They all give us information about the universe, but they don't always apply to every system. That's something that we're hoping to start to get information on when we start observing the large Magellanic Cloud. Wow. So I did some honors research on the Magellanic Clouds and the Magellanic Stream, but I had no idea that something so close 
could give us so many clues about the very early universe, which is, in astronomy terms, very, very far away from us. So that's really amazing. But not only are you a a very successful astrophysicist, you also own your own company. Yes, I do. I started my company called Astrocoms October 2018, so just over a year ago. It was born out of all of the outreach and consulting work I had done over the years as a postgraduate student and as a postdoctoral fellow. And I realized that there was actually a demand and a value for this outside of just a strictly academic environment. So uh, my first client was a, a sort of a tick type startup company called Measure Match, and they hired me to give a talk about big data in science, because they're also a data analytics company. And the idea of big data is laughably small in comparison to what we work with in the sciences. Um, So it was just really nice to sort of give them insight into, give a broader context for what big data is, where it's going, what's actually at the cutting edge, like the work that they do in the private sector is thought of as more interesting and useful, but a lot of the tools that come for handling that actually come from the sciences, where we have to have the best equipment and the most optimized algorithms and all that kind of stuff, and it filters down into industry. So I was invited to give a talk about that, and they actually paid me, and it was great. And I have had several other clients. I think my favorite one so far, they actually made me sign a non-disclosure agreement, so I can't say too much, but it was to be a technical, basically the technical consultant for a sci-fi TV program. What? So yeah, so like Kip Thorne, the Nobel Prize winner, Kip Thorne, who did Interstellar, he did the black hole stuff for Interstellar and made sure it was really accurate. Basically like that, but if you don't have a Hollywood budget, if you don't have Kip Thorne Nobel Prize winning money, I do the same thing, but much cheaper. So yeah, all sorts of things like that, speaking at festivals and so on. So the mandate basically of Astrocoms is that it's a STEM, so science, technology, engineering, and maths, consulting and communications company. So anything, whether it's just input on like for policy making or for curriculum, checking of a curricula um, or curriculum development to science consulting for the media, for the creative sectors, and then just also giving talks. I really enjoy and I'm very privileged to be working with the SKA program for as long as I have and being able to sort of showcase and highlight how far the program has come, all the exciting things that are happening, and especially in an African context, I love going out and dispelling what's called Afro-pessimism. So this idea that Africa is such an underdeveloped place, such a place that is somewhere that you just extract from and no one's actually building anything up. And it's really great to be able to go and dispel those myths and those negative connotations around Africa and say, you know, we are building cloud computing centers, we are on the cutting edge of astronomy, we are a global hub for astrophysics research. And it's not just in South Africa, it's actually spread around several countries across the continent. And this is what we're doing. These are the fantastic young people that are coming through and being able to talk about that. And I get paid to do that. I get paid to spread the word and change people's perceptions of this fantastic continent that we're on. And I think that's something I I really try to focus on and um, put at the heart of the work that I do through Astrocoms. And people are really interested. People want to hear 
these good news stories. They want to hear that things are changing. Um, and I always get really positive receptions about that. So I hope that there'll be more gigs like that in future. And yeah, just sort of open to all sorts of ideas where technical input is needed or a science perspective is needed, especially from someone still very much in the research community. So this is a fantastic idea, but it's still quite unusual um, in our field. I think you're one of maybe, I don't know how many, but I've never actually heard of it before. How do you make this work? Is it still currently more of a sort of a side hustle that you do in your quote unquote spare time? Or do you, have you incorporated this into your, I don't know what you would call day job perhaps? At the moment, it's very much a side hustle, but the idea is that I've got, I've set myself a five-year plan to grow the company to the point where it can be my day job. And that sort of gives me exactly enough time, I think, to wrap up my work with Meerkat and ASCAP because I feel that now is not the time to leave the science. I waited so long. The telescopes are here. They're doing amazing work, exceeding even the expectations of the people that built the telescopes. But at the same time, the work that we're doing with um, the SKA precursors is providing so much for me to actually talk about. So when people invite me, I have stuff to talk about. I can talk about the big data aspects. I can talk about the development aspects. I can talk about the political aspects because of what SKA is as well as all of this cutting-edge science and engineering, is also a beautiful example of science for diplomacy, uh, where you can pull resources and get a lot of people together from very different backgrounds, people in places that weren't necessarily engaged in science, and get them all together and get them all working on a common goal that will enrich the continent, but also bring a lot of opportunities to communities that weren't necessarily always engaged with STEM and that's the kind of thing that I get to have an inside, um, an insider's knowledge of and sort of evangelize about. And so I feel for me right now, those two things sort of go hand in hand. So it is a side hustle. Astrocoms is the side hustle at the moment. And I'm starting to get to the midpoint of this five-year plan where I'm going to have to, the tipping point's going to come where I'm going to have to devote less time to my research and more time to the company. And navigating that is going to be tricky. I'm not quite there yet. But the company's profile is being raised and I'm getting a lot of interesting work. And the people I work for are extremely supportive of this. So if I need to take time off sometimes to go give a talk, that's something that they're aware of and allow me to do. I do a lot of my work remotely as well. A lot of it is just via email or on Skype, telecons, things like that, um, with the interconnectivity that we're sort of in, that we're in in the modern day world, that is really possible. So it's not as tricky as it would seem because people are happy to jump on Skype. This is a, a podcast I'm doing right now and I'm sitting across from you. I did a podcast a couple of months ago where I was in Manchester and the uh, guy who runs the podcast is in Pretoria. And so we just did the podcast over Skype. We just recorded our Skype conversation. All these sort of mod cons really make it much easier for me to collaborate with people all over the world. Just pop something in an online repository, Google Docs or Evernote, and you can have real-time editing sessions, even if you're thousands of kilometers apart. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. The world is a lot smaller now than we sort of think it is. So I think this is absolutely inspirational and, and congratulations on, on getting this far and, and good luck in the future as you're sort of paving the way for others and the rest of us to sort of go down these paths. We should go back into our, our session in, for the, in the conference soon, but do you have any final messages for the listeners? 
I would say stay tuned to this podcast because they're doing fantastic work showcasing all of the cutting-edge science that's happening, especially interviewing young people. And also stay tuned because I'd like to come back and give more updates on my company and what I'm doing. I would say to any young people listening that things might sound outlandish. When I decided I wanted to be an astronomer in 1995, it sounded ridiculous and outlandish. But what people need to realize is if you are in high school now, in five or 10 years time, jobs will exist that don't exist now. I remember um, writing uh, a forward for a science magazine in 2013. And I used the phrase, I said something about a newfangled thing called data science. And now data science is so pervasive. There's so many astronomers that go into data science after they've um, concluded their um, research careers. And that didn't exist 10 years ago. There was no such thing as a data scientist. Big data wasn't something that was talked about the way it is now. The fourth industrial revolution is something that's getting people really excited. Things like cryptocurrency. These things didn't exist in our parents' time. They didn't exist when I was in high school. The telescopes I work on now didn't exist. Some of them didn't even exist when I was already doing my postdoctoral, oh sorry, my post, yeah, my postdoctoral studies because Meerkat was only completed in 2018 and I'd already had my PhD for five years at that point. So things change at a ridiculous pace and you would equip yourself well to not fix on something necessarily that you want to study because it might not exist by the time you finish your studies, but Be open-minded, be flexible, study things that are sort of future-proof. So things like coding, I would say languages, things um, because people often think that STEM is the way forward, but we need the mix of humanity. So study languages, because you never know when you might get shipped out to the middle of France, to a village, and someone comes to tell you to be careful of wild boars, and you might not be able to understand them, so it's a safety issue. Um, so I would say, yeah, study languages, even if you're South African and you're like, oh, but I want to stay in South Africa. Yeah, but you might have to go be a professor at the University of Venda, maybe learn some Venda, because you perhaps only speak Afrikaans and Prosa. Um, You never know. So yeah, just be open to learning experiences. And one thing I've learned from academia is that you never stop learning. I haven't sat any formal exams in many years, but I'm constantly doing online courses, um, attending seminars and so on. So yeah, just never stop learning. Be curious. And just because your dream job doesn't exist now doesn't mean that it won't exist in five years time. Brilliant. So finally, where can people find you and your company? They can find us on Facebook. There's the AstroComs Facebook page. They can find us on Twitter. So on Twitter, it's Astro underscore comms with two M's. And then online, uh, the website is astrocoms.com. And yeah, all the information you want on there, drop me a line. We respond really quickly. If you have any any queries about giving talks or any input that you want, just to kind of give an idea of what we do, I'm always happy to talk to, to anyone really who wants to listen. This has been absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much for speaking with us today, Tana, and also for doing it pro bono. Thank you again for having me. It was great. Okay, well, thank you very much for the interview. Yeah, it was awesome talking to Tana. She's an, an amazing speaker. And some interesting stuff in there. A lot of interesting details about X-ray binaries and gravitational waves, exciting projects like LISA, which is incidentally the Laser Interferometer Space Antenna. Oh, very good. So uh, an interferometer, gravitational wave interferometer, much like LIGO, which is currently operational, 
bit up in space. So cool. Launching a gravitational wave detector into space. And I think that Lisa is currently planned for 2034. So it'll be it'll be coming online about 10 years after the, the first SKA phase comes online. So if anyone who's listening is interested in becoming a gravitational wave astronomer, now's the time. <laughs> By the time you're trained, you'll be ready to use LISA. It's a very sexy science. It's <laughs> only, only in the last five years since we discovered them for the first time, right? Yeah. I think the, the recommendation when we were doing our undergraduate was, don't you dare get into gravitational mm-hmm, wave astronomy. I heard exactly the same thing. That's, There's been no detections. We don't know when the detection will be. It might be don't 50 years. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And lo and behold. Oh, man, those, those guys. <laughs> got lucky. <laughs> they did. Well, they worked very, very hard and were very patient That's true. for it. That's true. Okay, so back to, to Tana's uh, interview. I, I thought it was really interesting to hear about microquasars, which is where the black hole or whatever it is is accreting from the, the companion star and then releasing energy jets of radiation in a very similar manner to quasars, which is a type of AGN, and I I study these AGN, these active galactic nuclei. So I was really interested to hear how we can see these these much smaller scales of the same phenomena as these gigantic scales with the supermassive black holes that I study. Why we want to do that is because then we can see the variation on human lifetime time scales, which is great because we just can't live long enough to see these time scale changes in the, the big AGN. Yeah, it's very cool. Like these, yeah, like you say, micro quasars from micro black holes, and mm. it's yeah, the, the universe scales. It's mm. really cool. Yeah, and the uh, the other interesting thing, obviously, that Tana spoke about was her her company. Yeah, uh, Astrocoms. Yeah, it's it's pretty cool. I, I was very impressed to to see how her skills were transferable to to other realms of life. The interest from data scientists, big data firms and things and in what astronomers are doing because uh, in a lot of ways we are moving these fields forward in not just astronomy but in, in terms of dealing with big data. We're at the cutting edge. Yeah, absolutely. I thought her initiative is absolutely fantastic and I hope that we see more of these sorts of things in the future and especially giving the opportunity for those researchers who also want to do communications work to receive fair pay for that and therefore allow them to do more of this, which, which you know, ultimately I think helps society. Yeah. And the movies. Yes. Well, I mean, we all want to uh, advise on a movie. Yeah. So sit there, <laughs> the watch dream. it. Yeah, it is the dream. I mean, every nerdy astronomer's mm-hmm. dream to, Absolutely. to be the advisor on some sci-fi movie. <laughs> Cool. All right. Well, I think that's uh, that's it for today. Yeah. Thank you very much for listening. And we hope you'll join us again on the next episode of The Cosmic Savannah. You can visit our website, thecosmicsavannah.com, where we'll have links related to today's episode. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Cosmic Savannah. That's Savannah spelled S-A-V-A-N-N-A-H. Special thanks today to Dr. Tana Joseph for speaking with us. Thanks to Mark Olnut for music production, Janis Brink for astrophotography, Lana Serai for graphic design, and Tabisa Ficalepi for social media support. Also to Gola Indaliso and Samari Hatting for transcription assistance. We gratefully acknowledge support from the South African National Research Foundation and the South African Astronomical Observatory to help keep the podcast running. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to help us out, please rate and review us and recommend us to a friend. We'll speak to you next time on the Cosmic Savannah.
Welcome to episode 21. 21 today. <laughs> what? Oh, happy 21st. You know, it's a thing. People, oh, I, like 21st birthday. Yeah. Okay. So we I, don't know, I don't know if that's every culture. That you know, every culture has a different age. I think it used to be coming of age. You get the keys to the house. Yes, I, but I mean that might be sort of British descendants oh, of yes, British. It could be. Well, we're all from co- from Commonwealth countries, so. Well, not all of us, just the two of us. Yep, everyone in this room. Sure. <laughs> Welcome to episode twenty-one. <laughs> I got nothing. <laughs> <laughs> uh. 